Our Lord and God, we do thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for the the wonderful privilege, the opportunity that you've given us, Lord, to come and to to worship together, to lift up together the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to fellowship with one another on this day. Father, we pray that today you would uh, mold us, fashion and shape us for your glory. Let the means of fashioning and shaping be the word of God as it is preached in the ears of your saints. Lord, give your saints ears to hear and for unbelievers who may be here this morning. We pray that you would graciously grant them the grace to hear and to believe. Lord, let them not hear me or see me, but hear you. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. Become more, Lord. Become greater as I become lesser. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We will be looking at this morning the verses, uh, the first chapter of the book of Jonah, verses 4 through 16. So you can keep your place there as we embark again on the, the book of Jonah. The story of Jonah is really the story of Jonah's God. The book of Jonah, although it bears his name, is really a book about God until or unlike the, the book of Esther, who we remember had no mention of the name God, the book of Jonah repeatedly, over and over again, has the name of the Lord, the covenant Lord. And you'll see his name capitalized in that first chapter and throughout the rest of the book. Yahweh, Lord, over and over again in the book of Jonah. You will find it again capitalized. And it is indicating that it is referring to the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh. In, in that sense, the book of Jonah is no different from any of the other 66 books in the Bible. In the sense that although they may bear different titles, although they may have different authors, the chief subject of each of the books of the Bible remains the same. The chief subject of each and every book of the Bible is the covenant Lord, Yahweh. Jonah is not incidental in this story, though. He was a real man living at a real time. And he was also a man who attempted to run away from the call of God. The last time that we were together, we were introduced to this prophet from Gath Heifer. He's God's man. He is God's prophet. He's God's anointed prophet. And he arrives just after the time of Elijah and Elisha. He falls into that that line of prophets. And there's more that I think you should go study about that whole time in history, which is really interesting. But up until that moment, God called Jonah in verse two to arise and go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it. The call of Jonah had been rather bearable. The message that God had given Jonah to preach was a bearable message for Jonah, meaning the message that God had given Jonah to preach up until that time. It was not a difficult message to proclaim in second Kings 14. Jonah was called to proclaim a message of blessing and restoration to the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is a job that that any nationalistic Israelite would love to proclaim, especially to their countrymen. 
they would love to proclaim to their countrymen God's blessing and God's restoration. And now, in this prophecy, the Lord calls Jonah to be the first to go outside of the borders of Israel and to proclaim the message of judgment to a foreign nation, hoping or in in attempts or hoping that the nation might repent of their sins and be saved. Jonah tells us in chapter four that he knew this was the Lord's intentions to save the lost, to be merciful, to be slow to anger, to be abounding in love. In response to the command of God, Jonah runs away in disobedience. It appeared as though Jonah had forgotten that he and his nation were to be a light to the other nations. It appeared as though Jonah had forgotten who God was and that God was a saving and God is a saving God. It appeared that Jonah was appalled by the call of God to go to the to the nations. But listen to this. It also appeared that Jonah was also appalled by God. This is not who he thought God was. He thought that God was only the God of the Israelites. And for God to call Jonah to go outside of the borders of Israel, two other nations, it completely shattered the idea of who Jonah thought God was. Jonah tells us in Jonah 4, 1, that he was displeased and exceedingly angry. Do you see that? He was displeased and exceedingly angry. Why? What was the reason for Jonah's distress? He tells you in verse 2. I knew that you, who is you? God. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What is the reason for Jonah's distress? God is the reason for Jonah's distress. He had grown cold to the evangelistic heart of God. What was Jonah's problem? God was Jonah's problem. Jonah ran from the Lord. And Jonah ran from the Lord who was revealing himself to Jonah and who he really is. You ever been there? Running from who God really is. You have this idea Of who you think God is. And God all of a sudden shatters who you assume God to be. God was changing and shaping Jonah's view of God. God was changing and shaping Jonah's view of God's redemptive purposes for Israel and for the nations. God was changing and shaping Jonah's view. Listen, of Jonah. And who Jonah was. And who Jonah was supposed to be. When the Lord, by his grace, brothers and sisters, chooses to reveal himself to you in his word, what will be your response? When all of your assumptions, all of your traditions, all of your presuppositions are challenged by God and his word, who will be the one to bend? I will tell you, friend, it will not be God. 
God will not be the one to bend. With that said, let us catch up with this prophet, this runaway prophet in Jonah chapter one. Let us stand for the reading of the, of the word of the Lord. Excuse me. Verse four. But the Lord. This is the word of a God. But the Lord, Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come to us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of who and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode harder, hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased or as as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Those who have ears to hear are blessed to hear what the spirit of God says. You may be seated or please be seated this morning. In the verses before us this morning, we would like to point out at least three, three points. The first point with two sub points. And I'll bring those out as we we move forward. In these verses, we discover God's unfolding plan of redemption. Number one, the wrath of God. Number one, the wrath of God. Verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah disobeys the command of God. And upon Jonah's disobedience, the Lord automatically responds by hurling a great wind upon the sea, a tempest so mighty. So great, so grand that it threatens to break up the ship. God's man runs from God and we begin to wonder, what is Jonah thinking? Running away from God, 
does Jonah think that God will not pursue him to the ends of the earth or to the uttermost parts of the sea? Does Jonah think that he can outrun God? Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. Can a man hide himself in the secret places so that I cannot see him? God asked. Do I not feel heaven and earth? God asked. And the answers to those questions are no and yes. No, a man cannot hide himself from God. And yes, God does fill every inch of heaven and earth. Jonah somehow, some way thinks that he can remove himself from the obligation or the call of God simply by removing himself from the presence of God. But we discussed this last time. Where exactly is that? Where can you go from the presence of God? Where can you hide to escape the presence of God? Friend, there is no place that you can hide from the presence of God. So what is God's response? The Lord hurls a great storm at him. Who hurled the storm? The Lord hurled the storm. Yahweh hurled this storm. Nature, not even in its fallenness, is autonomous. Nature does not have the freedom to do and act as it will. It does not have a free will independent of God's will and purpose. The Lord is sovereign over all of his creation. It is God who is the first cause of all things. God was the one who initiated this storm. It was not Mother Nature who by happenstance caused this tempest to threaten the lives of those on the ship. Brothers and sisters, there is no such thing as human nature. Or there is no such thing as mother nature. There's no such thing as human nature. There's no such thing as mother nature. <laughs> you should eliminate mother nature from your vocabulary, just as you should eliminate. And I'm catching some of you guys as I hear you talk. Eliminate the word luck from your cat, from your vocabulary. Amen. I'll say that again. Amen. There is only one Lord, the sovereign Lord of the universe. The sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth, Yahweh, the one who made the sea and the dry land. He hurls this mighty wind upon the sea and brings Jonah and his fellow mariners, those fellow sailors, into this life-threatening storm. God did this. The point is this, that the Lord did not leave Jonah alone in his disobedience. He did not allow Jonah to think, Oh, it's okay if you ignore me. It's okay if you try to run from me. It's okay if you disobey me. It was not okay for God. The Lord did not ignore the disobedience of Jonah. He did not overlook the disobedience of Jonah. It was an act of God who is executing judgment on this disobedient servant. Brothers and sisters, all sin, all of our sin is first and foremost against God. We may do violence to our neighbors, but first and foremost, all of our sins are against a holy and righteous God. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is violating the righteous law of God, the righteous requirements of God. The word of God says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against heaven or from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, by their sin. Suppress the truth. The wrath of God will be poured out upon all those who suppress the truth of God, who have resisted to refuse and repent, who resisted Christ and refused to repent of their sins. 
Christ is our only way of being saved or rescued from the wrath of God. As a result of Jonah's sin and disobedience, the wrath of God comes. And the Lord does not hold back his wrath. The Lord does not give a a slight nudge to Jonah. This is a furious, wrathful storm that comes crashing down upon Jonah and upon all those who are in this boat. This is no gentle nudge. The fury of the wrath of God is coming down on judgment. And listen, brothers and sisters, the wrath of God is not something to be taken lightly. The wrath of God is not something to be toyed with. God gives you grace and you keep running back to sin. The wrath of God is not something to be toyed with. In verse 5, even these seasoned sailors, these seasoned mariners, they begin to become exceedingly afraid and they call out to who? To their gods. These men who have lived on these seas, even these men who have experienced different storms, have never seen anything like this. They are so afraid that they begin to call out to their gods. And when their gods don't answer them, and their gods would not answer them because all other gods are false gods, all other gods are vanities. When that doesn't work, they begin to throw cargo over the ship in order to lighten the ship. They may have thrown over over a half of year's wage over the ship just to save their own lives. When the wrath of God comes, brothers and sisters, it is your lives that are on the line. It is nothing less than your lives that are on the line. Nothing less than your souls that are on the line. That are in danger when the wrath of God comes. There is no sin that is out of his sight. There is no sin that will not go unpunished. Jeremiah 23, 19 says this. Listen closely. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth. A whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. And listen to when this happens. In the latter days, you will clearly understand this. It it is an end times promise for those who are who are in sin when God comes to execute judgment on the sinful world. And Jonah, at this particular time on the sea, is experiencing a, an eschatological judgment before the eschaton, before the end times. He's experiencing a last days kind of terror that has come upon him and these men. Jonah has experienced on the sea What those who are on the sea will experience when God comes in Jesus Christ to execute his judgment. Jonah's experiencing it at that moment. If you're scared of end times, if opening up the book of Revelation gives you the heebie-jeebies, Jonah is experiencing a revelation end times type of moment at this time on the sea. As the wrath of God comes... There are two different kinds of responses. First, this is our point one, sub point one. Okay, so it would be point one A, and then I'll have a point point one B. This is your point one A, and it is this: the response of the sailors to the wrath of God. The response of the sailors to the wrath of God. What is their response when the wrath of God comes? They call out to their gods. They throw they go they throw cargo over the ship. And and we must not see, listen closely, we must not see these sailors as innocent bystanders. 
who were simply caught in the crossfires of the wrath of God. Do you hear what I'm saying? These are not men who were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and, and just for further notice and for future reference, there is no person who was in the wrong place at the wrong time who didn't get what they deserved. We are all sinners against God. We are all sinners against God. And sometimes this passage is, is preached as if salvation or judgment has come to the innocent and salvation comes to those who really deserved it. Not the case. These are not innocent men. These men were vile men. They, they were sailors. Enough said. Huh? They were sailors, pagan sailors who may have been just as vile and sinful as the Ninevites, who may have been just as vile and sinful as the Ninevites. And even if we don't have all of the details of their lives and their private lives, we only need to read the first part of verse five to see how sinful and vile they really were. The mariners were afraid and each called out to his God. Different gods, false gods. These are pagans who are worshiping false gods. At the very least, they are idolaters. They are worshiping vanities. They are worshiping false gods. The wrath of God does not come on any innocent man or woman. Save alone the Lord Jesus Christ who bore the sins of sinful humanity. The wrath of God does not come upon any innocent man. Any innocent woman except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So they were not unfortunate. They were not in the wrong place at the wrong time. They were worthy of the wrath of God. What is their response? They're trying to save themselves from the wrath of God. How do they attempt to do that? First, by calling out to their God. Second, by throwing over cargo in order to save themselves. Calling out to their gods. Who they may have been calling out to all of their lives. And at the point that they needed their gods the most, their gods don't answer. At the point that they needed their gods to save them the most, their gods are not there. How much time and effort did they put into these gods? How much time and effort and mind time did they spend concerning these gods? And yet when they needed these gods, they were nowhere to be found. What God will you cry upon when your time of going through engulfments of the sea? Who will you cry out to? Well, I would cry out to God. Maybe so. But what have you most invested your time in up until that moment? Because what you have invested your time in up until that moment is really the thing that you have worshipped as your God. So they throw over, over cargo. Trying to save themselves. And you have to imagine. This is a, a, a storm like they have never seen before happening. While all of these things are taking place that we're talking about. At some point during this grand and great tempest of the sea, they begin to realize that this storm is unnatural. This is no normal storm. This is not something that we've seen before. This is something beyond natural. It is spiritual. 
They believe that there is some kind of supernatural force that is behind this storm. These are religious men. They are falsely religious, but they are still religious. They cry out to their own gods. But they know that the problem here is spiritual. The world, in, in its most immediate need, they have a spiritual need. And sometimes even unbelievers, those who have not trusted in Christ, they understand that the problem with the world is spiritual and not natural. Even unbelievers sometimes can discern that. Sailors, they're at a loss for what to do when the wrath of God comes. Now, where's Jonah in all this? Here's your sub point B, Jonah's response to the wrath of God. Verse five. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. He is the one person on the boat who actually knew the one true God. The one person who actually knew the reason for the tempest on the sea. And he is fast asleep. He is in a deep sleep. Jonah does not cease to amaze us, does he? Jonah, the prophet of God, goes down to Joppa in order to go to Tarshish. And then goes down into the innermost part of the boat to take a nap. It is this this consistent pattern of Jonah. He, He keeps going Running away from God, he keeps going down, down, down. When the wrath of God comes, Jonah is found asleep. And at this point, we begin to question the sanity of Jonah. Are you out of your mind? God sends his wrath and you are fast asleep. Jonah has essentially, listen close to this, he's departed from reality. What universe are you living on, Jonah? We're going to die. Like, right now we're going to die. And Jonah, he is willfully hiding his head in the sand. Not dealing with it. He's choosing not to look the wrath of God in the face. He's choosing not to deal with the reality that he has displeased God. That he has disobeyed God. And so he takes refuge He takes refuge in oblivion. He takes refuge in not dealing with it, not dealing with his disobedience and 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 thinking that God will be just fine with that. I'm just going to go take a nap and all of this will pass. You've been there. We've been there. We see this in our world. Those who take refuge in false religions. And then there are those who take refuge in oblivion. They would rather distract themselves. They would rather sleep it off, not wanting to face the truth. So they tune out. Just tune out. And we can easily be tempted to act as Jonah acted. We can easily distract ourselves. We can tune out with work. We can tune out with entertainment. And there are are, a myriad of entertainments that you can distract yourself with so that you don't have to deal with it. You can distract yourself with material things or you can numb yourselves with sex, with drugs, with alcohol, all for the purposes of removing yourself from the reality that we have sinned against God. And all for what? So that we could avoid coming to grips with the harsh reality 
that the wrath of God stands against us as long as we stand against him. This is the trouble with humanity. We've tried and then failed. And so we just tune out and we tune out some people to the very point of condemnation and death. All the while, they appear to have no problems just sleeping their days away. And yet they are facing the impending wrath of God. For unbelievers, the fact, and this is very important, for an unbeliever, the fact that your conscience does not overly concern you. I don't feel any urge. I don't feel any, any, any wrath of God that is coming upon me. The fact that your conscience does not overly concern you does not mean that you do not need to be overly concerned. As if I feel no danger, there is no da- there, therefore there is no danger. Not so. Not so. The opposite is true. Sin and Satan, they have the capacity to sear our consciences and almost make us oblivious to the seriousness of our sin. I believe in God, no big deal. We're going to get to that in a moment. The seriousness of our rebellion against God and not running to Christ, but running from Christ. Brothers and sisters, friends, dear ones, we must beware of this in our own lives. We must be sensitive to God and what pleases God. We must not ignore or tune out to the signs that God is graciously giving us in our lives to cause us or to warn us at least to turn from our sins and to turn to him. Don't ignore the signs. Can you imagine if Jonah went through all of this, as we're going to see in a moment, and said, it's just a storm. In his disobedience, saying, it's just a storm. No big deal. No, it is not. It is a sign, a warning from God. Turn back. The great and mighty tempest, it did not yet dismantle the heart of Jonah, though. He was fast asleep. But listen to this. God will not stop at any lengths to bring lost sinners or even lost saints back to himself. He will stop at no lengths to bring lost sinners or even lost saints back to himself. And for all the different responses, the the efforts and the idolatry of the sailors, the oblivion of Jonah. God is hurling his wrath in order to prepare the hearts of these sailors and even to prepare the heart of Jonah in some sense for salvation. Number two, point two. Salvation by works. That's a question mark. Salvation by works. Verses seven through 13. We're not going to read it. You can read it yourself. As the chapter unfolds, we see that God is preparing these sailors for what? To hear about himself. God is preparing the hearts of these sailors for what? To hear the message of God. The sailors have come to the point of no return. They've called out to their gods. They've thrown over cargo. And the tempest, the storm, it's not subsiding. But rather, it is becoming even more and more violent. The ship is breaking apart. Get the picture in your mind. And all of these things have come because of the disobedience of Jonah. 
And now, as they are trying to do all that they can, they realize that there was yet one person who was not yet called upon God, and he's sleeping under deck. The Bible says in verse 6, the captain goes down. What do you mean, you sleeper? Imagine the storm, the boat, everything. The ship is breaking apart. The, the captain goes down and says to Jonah, What is your problem? You're sleeping. Arise. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. These men are practically begging or inviting at least Jonah to come and speak to them about his God. Call upon your God. Up until this point, all of the gods have been called upon, except for one. Hey, you haven't called upon your God yet. Call upon him. Maybe he'll do something. Jonah comes and gathers with the men. And if you can imagine, he comes out. The, the boat is rocking. It's breaking apart. There was a storm coming down upon them. Jonah sees the storm. And even in the chaos, Jonah knows exactly why this is happening. Jonah knows what is happening, and Jonah knows why it's happening. In the midst of this mighty storm, sent by God, the men resolve, and you got to get this picture, as they are in this mighty storm, they resolve, let's cast lots. Remember, it's the, the dice game. Let's cast lots. Call a number. Whoever, whatever number you call on, we're going to find out from you why this is happening. So in the midst of this storm, they cast lots and the lot falls on Jonah. They cast lots. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The Lord determines the outcome. I would have used that verse in, in Esther if I had known it. Men can do as they please, but ultimately it is the sovereign Lord who dictates and decrees every single outcome. So they are casting lots. They are throwing dice as God has ordained and allowed. And God has also ordained and allowed that lot or that number to fall on Jonah. The lot falls on Jonah and Jonah's not like, oh, Jonah's is like, yeah. Jonah would have been surprised if it didn't fall on him. Like, oh, it's not me. What's really happening then? They begin to pepper Jonah with questions. Remember, in the midst of all this, there's a mighty storm taking place, okay? So they're not simply politely asking these questions. Imagine them screaming these questions at the top of their lungs as water is coming and pouring over them. What is your occupation? Verse 8. Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? Jonah's response, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The God that they have been crying out to is not the God that they have just been introduced to. The gods that they have been crying out to are different from the God that they have just been introduced to. They've been crying out to vanities. They've been crying out to gods that they've created for themselves. Jonah introduces them to the God who created them. He is the God who made the sea and the dry land. And this one runaway prophet, this runaway disobedient prophet is put on the spot and he boldly declares, I fear the Lord. 
the God who created the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. Not like the God that you have been serving or calling out to in vain. And it's strange, isn't it? It's strange that Jonah is running from this God and all of a sudden he is boldly proclaiming this God. And when you look at what he says, he has right theology. Do you see how easily you can have right theology in a disobedient heart? It is easy to combine accurate theology and a rebellious, disobedient heart. You fear the Lord, Jonah. Really? And yet you are running from him. You are sleeping. You are trying to go to the utter parts of the world at that time. You can have right theology and a disobedient heart. Never forget, brothers and sisters, that the Lord looks past all of our confessions. Whether they be 1689, Westminster, so on and so forth. He looks past our solas. He looks past our five points. And he looks for true hearts. Broken and contrite, repentant hearts. What was the great complaint of the Lord Jesus Christ? You worship me with your lips. You have right theology, but your hearts are far from me. And don't think that you do God any service by your attendance. Even our attendance can be misconceived as true heart. It is who you are in the secret place. Who you are when no one sees you. That is the true repentant contrite heart before God. In your hearts are you confessing Christ? Is Christ enthroned there? Is your worship before God true? Your worship before God It may be lacking in understanding and and you should strive. You should labor for more understanding. But if your DNA was to be taken from you, would it be shown that at at the very core of your being, that Jesus Christ is Lord in your heart? People say, well, they don't know my heart. No, we don't. But we see your heart in your actions. That's why the sinner who says only God knows my heart. You're right, sinner. And you are showing exactly what you believe in your heart with your sin. Jonah combines accurate theology. And a disobedient heart. The context. Is the events. Of chapter one. Or the context, create the events for the context of the, men, of the sailors to be ministered to. Create the context of which Jonah announces the one true God. Meaning this, that God has provided an opportunity for these men to be saved. How? Through this storm. Once again, the Lord shows that he seeks and saves the lost And he will not stop at any lengths to bring his own to himself. Even these vile sailors 
who are idolaters in their hearts. And isn't it ironic that Jonah says he fears the Lord? Does he fear the Lord? No, that's the problem. He doesn't fear the Lord. He's not displaying fear from the Lord. He's running from the command of God. He's burying his head in the sand. And yet, what is the response of the sailors when he says to them, I fear the Lord, the one who made the sea and dry land? What is their response? Verse 10. The men. Then the men. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Why were they afraid? They were first afraid because of the storm. And now it is though the storm is nowhere near them. Now they're afraid because they are being confronted with the God who created the storm. Now they're afraid. These men for the very first time begin to have a sense of the fear of God. When I was in a car accident when I was 19 years old, I was raised by my mother and father to to believe in Christ, that he is the savior of the world and from our sins. But I was not fearful of him. I was raised by my parents to believe in heaven and to believe in hell. But I was not afraid of them. Why? Because I was living in sin. At the moment that I was struck by a drunk driver. The Lord, by his grace, gave me a fear of him. Why? Because I realized at that moment I should be dead. And I would have endured or not endured, but been under the wrath of God for the rest of eternity. That storm, if you will, created in me the fear of the Lord. I no longer cared about the accident. Now I was more fearful of the Lord. When has your fear of the Lord moment happened? Or are you sitting here this morning and you have no fear of God? Let me say to you, you could go through all sorts of different activities. You can worry yourself or you could busy yourself with all sorts of different activities. And if you have not yet come to fear the Lord, that does not mean there is nothing to fear. These men begin to fear the Lord for the first time. Jonah says that he fears the Lord. They show what it means to really fear the Lord. Verse 10, here's what they say. What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. At some point, Jonah told them, I'm running from the Lord. And they say to Jonah, what we've all been thinking, what is wrong with you? You're running from the one who created the sea and the dry land, the creator of all you provoked at this wrath. When the sailors, God could not save them, what did the sailors do? They turned to their religion, to their own works. Essentially, they cry out to their God, and their gods could not save them. So now they must do something on their own to save themselves. They throw over cargo. They've acknowledged that there's a problem, and it's a spiritual problem. The storm is no ordinary storm. So they're trying to save themselves. They're doing efforts, and nothing is saving them. Why? Because God's wrath, it must be satisfied. And it cannot be satisfied by human effort. It cannot and will not be satisfied by human effort. So they've taken Jonah seriously. They're almost taking Jonah seriously, more seriously than he's taking himself. 
Verse 11, they say to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be quiet for us? They are ready to listen to the prophet. And here's the word of the Lord from the prophet. Here it is. Verse 13, verse 12. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Jonah essentially says this. Throw me into the sea. Throw me to my death. And the wrath of God will be satisfied. Are you seeing the type there? Are you seeing the shadow there? The wrath of God has come because of disobedience. There is one who says, if you kill me, God's wrath will be satisfied. And there does seem to be a pause there. A moment of unbelief. Because they do not immediately do what he says. What do they do in verse 13? Nevertheless, or instead... The men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Instead of listening to the word of the Lord, instead of listening to the prophet, which would be listening to the word of the Lord, they buckle down and they try to row harder. To do what? To save themselves. Do you see the efforts there? He's, he's told them how to be saved. God throws... God. God's servant tells them how to be saved and they say, no, we'll just work harder. We'll just do better. We'll just give more effort. God throws wrath at wrath at them and they throw works back at him. When God's word comes and tells them how to be saved, they try harder to save themselves. You know, people like that. And you say to them. Trust in Christ. You cannot save yourself. Well, I think when I stand before God one day, he know that I tried my best. Take them to Jonah. We have our favorite passages that we like to take them to. No, Ephesians 2. No, uh, you know, Romans, whatever. Take them to Jonah. You're like one of these sailors right here. And the wrath of God will not will not relent if you try to do this on your own. They may not want to kill Jonah. They know about God. They know now that he is a prophet. And yet there's something of this notion of sacrificing Jonah that just it just doesn't sit well with them. Jonah says, throw me to the sea and you'll be saved. They say, let's let's see if we can't get this thing back to the shore. They almost seem offended. By the message of Jonah, they were unwilling to receive his message that the wrath of God would be turned away through the sacrifice of a man. The wisdom of men thinks they know better than the plan of God for salvation. Sacrifice for salvation? Isn't there something less severe? Surely we can work harder. Isn't there another way? No. No, there is no other way. You will not come to salvation unless there is a sacrificial death where one dies for many. Who does that remind you of? The Lord Jesus Christ. They try to row back. They think they know better than God. Verse 13. But they could not. In a certain sense. Their will is broken. They are trying with all of their might. To row back to shore. Until they just say I can't do it. I can't do it. There is not enough effort. And who knows how many men were on the ship. But of all of the strength of men, it could not overcome the will and power of God. They could not. And their wills to work any longer 
were broken. And thank God for a broken will. Thank God for a surrendered, broken heart who says, I cannot do this on my own. They row. And their will is broken. Their efforts are hopeless. What shall they do? In closing this, salvation by sacrifice. At the ending verses, they finally ask God for forgiveness as they prepare to throw Jonah over the ship. And you can imagine the breaking up of the ship, the storm, the rain, all of these things are happening as they pray to God, forgive us for this man's life. But it pleases you, they say. But it pleased you for this to happen. They throw him over the ship. The Bible says in Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins shall die. The Lord said to Adam and Eve, if they disobeyed, they would die. The sailors realized the harsh reality of sin is this. The wrath of God results in death. The wrath of God brings death. The men recognize that this is the work of the Lord. It pleased the Lord. So they hurled Jonah into the sea. And as Jonah, a real man, goes into real water, he almost sinks down to the very bottoms. We'll find out in Jonah chapter 2 that, that seaweed wraps around his head, that he is literally sinking to the depths. Jonah's experiencing a real death. As Jonah goes to his death, listen, life comes to the sailors and the sea becomes calm. In verse 15, Jonah fills the role of the scapegoat. And the sacrifice he makes for the sailors is the means by which God turns away his wrath from his wrath from them. This is the way of salvation announced by God through his prophet. He was a rebellious prophet, but he was a true prophet. Jonah, not is not dying for their sins, though. Listen close. He, he's not dying. He's not Jesus. But it is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a shadow, or as Arturo was saying earlier, it is a shadow or type of Christ. Christ who dies to bring about the salvation for many. The Lord Jesus Christ even sees himself as a type of Jonah, doesn't he? He says that no sign will be given to this generation except for the sign of Jonah. And what is that sign? There's a sign of death, salvation, and for the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrection and ascension. What was the saving effect that this sea or this wrath had upon these men? Look at verse 16. Were these men converted? Were they converted? Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The placement of this verse is very important. Earlier, these men were afraid when they heard who, when they saw the storm, when they saw who God was, the one who made the heavens and the earth. And now the storm is no longer raging. The storm is quiet. The wrath of God has been turned away from these men. And yet. The great fear of the Lord is something that has not passed from these men. They still feel or they still fear the Lord. It is a, a, a Martin Luther clinging to the rock in the midst of his storm type of moment who makes vows to God in the midst of his storm. And then when the storm is passed, he goes and enters a monastery 
When did they offer sacrifices? After the storm. When did they make these vows of thanksgiving and praise? After the storm. The vows followed their being saved. They were not vows to be saved. They were rather vows because they were now saved. Interesting. Jonah ran from the Lord in order to avoid bringing favor to the Gentiles. And where does he find himself? On a boat bringing favor to Gentiles. Jonah is being used in spite of himself. And that may be what some of you and I think about ourselves sometimes. Who am I? Why me? I could not in any way be used by the Lord. Do you know my past? Have you seen my, my history? And yet, God in his grace chooses to use us in spite of all of those things. What a wonderful God. Merciful and gracious we serve. Jonah becomes a picture of Christ. This is the work of God. In bringing the gospel to the nations. The Lord brought his wrath upon Jonah. And his disobedience. Why in closing? Because God will go to any lengths. To bring his elect. To himself. Because God loved Jonah. Too much. To leave Jonah. In his disobedience. God loved men on the boat too much to leave them in their disobedience. And God loved the people of Nineveh too much to not send to them a prophet with this word of judgment and and repentance. And what you and I need to take to heart this morning is this. That our God will go to any lengths to recover his own from sin and rebellion. He may... As he did with Jonah, engulf your lives in great storms. And remember this, if you find yourself there in those storms, it's not because he doesn't care for you. But just the opposite. Because he cares for his own more than we could ever imagine in in 10,000 lifetimes times 10,000. It was because he cared for us that he engulfed his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the great storm of his wrath and judgment. That's how much he cared for us. He engulfed himself so that we might not be engulfed in his righteous wrath. That we brought upon ourselves such storms as we may see in the life of Jonah, though may not always be the result of disobedience. The great storm that engulfed the Lord Jesus Christ was not a result of his disobedience. He was the obedient, perfect, loving son of the Father. The storms that come to us in life, like what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, these sufferings of this present life, are sometimes not always the result of disobedience but the result of living in a fallen world. Storms may touch our lives, not because of any willful disobedience, but simply because we live in a fallen world. And God, by his grace, allows storms for our own sanctification, 
and being likened to Christ. We must be careful how we interpret storms when they come. Be careful how you interpret the providence of God, providences of God when they come. Jonah must have surely went down to the boat and said, there's a boat going to Joppa. God is with me. Not even realizing that, yes, God is with you, but for the opposite reason of what you think. He's not trying to get you away from this. He's going to bring you back to this. When the trials of your life, brothers and sisters, when the storms of life engulf you. They may suggest to you that God does not care. You may be tempted to think that. And in order to fight that temptation, what must you do? You must always go back to the cross. As your chief evidence of God's care and love for you, go back to the cross. Storms are coming. Where are you, God? Go back to the cross. There you will find how much he truly loves you. My world is being engulfed by by unpleasant storms. God, where are you? Go back to the cross and be reminded of how much he is truly present with you. You can't look at your bank accounts as evidence for God's love. You can't look at your extravagance of of transportation as evidence of God's love. We just had a car that broke down the other week on the on the freeway in the rain. Was I kicking dirt and saying, God, where are you? You cannot find evidence for God's love in the wellness of your bodies or in the safety of your temporal lives. Go back to the cross and there you will find God's chief evidence to you, his own, who have repented and trusted in Christ alone. There you will find your chief evidence of God's unfailing unfailing love Satan is going to tempt you brothers and sisters going to tempt you to think that to 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 suggest to you to tempt you to to believe that God is callous that God is uncaring he spared not his only son He spared not his only son. Where is my wife, Lord? Where is my husband, Lord? Where is this financial prosperity I think I should be having? I need a better car. God, are you uncaring? He spared not his only son. Don't ever forget that. The great wind and tempest came from God. Why? Because God was seeking to recover Jonah. To awaken Jonah to his own callous heart. And to awaken Jonah to the true heartbeat of God. To the evangelistic rhythm of God's heart. To God be the glory. Let us stand.